Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, October 2nd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Hey, so I got a riddle for you. Okay. What's invisible, but without it, you'd be dead in minutes? Um, oxygen? Yeah, pretty much. The answer I was going for is air. Uh-huh. And, and air is not something we talk about much on this show. I mean, sure, we talk about carbon dioxide in the context of climate change, but for something that is omnipresent... Uh, we don't really talk about the science of it very much. Although uh, I do that- think um, possibly some people think we're full of hot air. Is that, I, is, that, is that not good? I haven't read the reviews on iTunes lately. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. <laughs> well, this week we're going to change all of that because we have an old guest back. Uh, some loyal listeners might, might remember Sam Keen from way back in episode 38, where he came on to tell you tales of brains and neurosurgeons, which led to you writing an article about our dear friend from Game of Thrones, Mr. Hodor. Hodor. Yep. I still quote that article whenever I teach about Broca's aphasia in my neuroanatomy classes. Well, Sam has has changed gears a little bit with this one because he's back to tell the tale of air, its chemistry, its history, and our evolving relationship with it. He takes us all the way back to the beginning of life itself on this planet, how the composition of the atmosphere has changed pretty dramatically over those billions of years. All the way forward to the last breath of Caesar. And, and get this, courtesy a little bit of math, he says that molecules from Caesar's last breath as he lay there bleeding are inside both you and I today. Okay, I, I just can't wrap my head around that. That just seems totally impossible. That just means there's a lot of molecules in of air out there. And probability says that a couple of those molecules are within us today. I think it's pretty cool. It shows sort of a a prevailing nature to all of this air around us. And he makes a really strong case that the air itself has powered human evolution from the sense of it's driven innovations and inventions. Uh, it's a key part of natural disasters. And, you know, when it when we talk about the future, the air itself is a big driver of climate change. Uh, it's all in all an epic tale full of weird elements and kind of some crazier characters. And I just want to say to our listeners, uh, apologies for, for the audio on my end of the recording, but I had switched mics, but we thought the interview was so fun. We decided to run it anyways. 
So with that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Sam Keen. Sam Keen, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, thanks for having me. How did you get fascinated with the idea of gas, given where you've been with some of your other novels? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Uh, one is that with my books, I really like to start with sort of a central scientific theme, like the periodic table, the human brain or whatever. But I like having the opportunity to branch off and to jump into a lot of different areas of human life to cover you know, a lot of things about culture, not just the science. And I knew that the error uh, the atmosphere, the gases would give me the chance to do that because they really do affect our lives in so many hidden and unusual ways. And so I liked that opportunity. And I also knew air was really a something very topical, something a lot of people are talking about, people are worrying about it. And I just thought it'd be fun to write a book that really tried to explain the atmosphere, how it worked, in addition to all of these kind of fun, quirky stories. Let's talk about the sheer amount of gas, which is really where your book begins, about the just the number of molecules in a breath and how that persists over time. Yeah, so actually the title of the book, Caesar's Last Breath, uh, is kind of a play off that idea. It's sort of a classic thought experiment for chemistry and physics students especially. You ask them, okay, what are the odds that you are inhaling right now in this next breath a molecule that Julius Caesar exhaled during his last breath when he was assassinated in 44 BC. And the first time you think about that, you think, no way, that's impossible. I mean, he died so long ago, and one breath is so puny compared to the entire atmosphere that there's no possible way you could be breathing in, you know, even a little tiny bit of that breath. So it seems impossible. But if you look at it a little more closely and you look at the number of molecules you breathe in each breath, it's something like 25 sextillion molecules, which is a 25 with 21 zeros coming after it. It's basically an incomprehensibly large number. And there's so many of those molecules and they're so hardy, they stick around in the atmosphere for so long uh, that it turns out there's a pretty good chance that you're breathing in a molecule every time you take a breath that Julius Caesar exhaled when he was assassinated. So it actually gives you this very direct material connection to this amazing historical event. You know, even though the buildings that he uh, was running around in at the time, most of those have fallen down, his body's long gone, the knives that stabbed him are gone, you still have this connection with Caesar through his breath. So that's where the title of the book comes from. Even though the molecules might be the same, uh, one of the things you dive into early on is this idea that even though many of us think of our atmosphere largely as static, even with the conversations about climate change, that it has really gone through some pretty dramatic changes uh, since the birth of the Earth. And I want to talk about some of those early atmospheres because one of the things that you really relate is that this the concentration of gases that we relate to, like oxygen, has changed dramatically and then has had huge impacts on the way life has existed on this planet. 
Yeah. So if you talk to geologists or people who study the history of the Earth, they usually say that Earth has had roughly four different atmospheres. Uh, I get into a little more detail in the book, obviously, but the first one was sort of a wispy hydrogen helium kind of comb over atmosphere. Wasn't too impressive, but, you know, comb, it was around. Comb over atmosphere? Is comb that over. Yeah, it was very thin. Like it wasn't really fooling anyone. I just call it sort of this, yeah, very wispy kind of a comb over atmosphere. Barely covered the entire Earth. Um so that was the first one. The second one then was mostly volcanic gases. So if you've ever been around a, uh, an active volcano, you can imagine it was pretty smelly, some kind of hot, nasty, reactive gases spewing out. So not one very friendly to life. Then the third atmosphere was one that was dominated by nitrogen, which is still the dominant gas in the atmosphere. Nitrogen's a very benign molecule, very unreactive. So it's kind of a good thing that nitrogen's a dominant gas in that, uh, as opposed to the volcanic gases, nitrogen is sort of a protective blanket for life on Earth and won't do us damage the way those other gases were. So we should be thankful we have the nitrogen atmosphere. Mostly because of the strength of that nitrogen-nitrogen bond that's in nitrogen gas, which you get into. Yeah, exactly. It, you, which you get into. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, what was the fourth atmosphere then, if that's the third, the nitrogen-dominating one? Yeah, then the fourth atmosphere that came about was an oxygen atmosphere, or one that had oxygen as a major component. And that actually didn't come around until, you know, a few hundred million years ago when you start to get appreciable levels of oxygen. So life on Earth actually arose well before oxygen existed, which seems kind of strange. We usually associate oxygen very closely with life, but the truth is oxygen, when it first appeared, was actually poisonous to most creatures and actually killed them uh, rather than, you know, uh, giving them any uh, energy or anything like that like it would to us. I compare it in the book to, you know, if we imagine chlorine gas being released and us trying to breathe that in. That's what oxygen was like for these early microbes. It killed them off, actually. Uh, eventually, though, of course, our ancestors learned how to harness oxygen and to use it. And as you mentioned, the levels of oxygen in the air have kind of veered wildly up and down over the past few hundred million years. And that has had one strange effect, especially on a group of animals, one group of animals in particular, and that's insects, uh, because insects have kind of this unusual breathing process. Unlike birds and mammals and reptiles, they don't have lungs the way that we do, so they don't inhale gases into their lungs and diffuse it into their blood and send it to their cells like we do. Instead, they have these pores on their skin and they sort of let oxygen kind of passively diffuse into them. And that works fine for them, except it's actually kind of an inefficient breathing process and they have trouble getting oxygen to their interior cells, the cells deep inside them. And that's actually why insects are usually very small creatures because of this inefficient breathing process. Uh, if you've ever wondered why insects are usually so tiny, that's why. is because of this uh, inefficient breathing. They have trouble getting oxygen to their interior cells. 
But the thing is, if oxygen levels rise high as they have in the past, they've been as high as 35% oxygen in the past compared to about 20% today. When oxygen reaches those high levels, like 35%, insects can actually get much, much bigger. And you see in the fossil record, you know, millipedes the size that are like a yard long. Uh, you see dragonflies the size of seagulls. You see spiders that are over a foot wide. So you all of a sudden see these gigantic insects just because of some changes in the amount of oxygen in the air. So things like, you know, the amount of oxygen, we sort of take it for a granted, think it's something that's steady throughout Earth, but it's changed a lot. And it really does change uh, the evolution of creatures in dramatic ways. You know, ever since I read that in your book, it sort of kept me up at night a little bit, the idea of meter-long millipedes. And uh, and now that's, a, that's a, a nightmare that many of our listeners can have along <laughs> with me. Uh, Happy to share it. <laughs> as much as this it dives into some of the, the science of those diff different early times, you really spend most of your time in this book talking about the personalities that really start to uncover uh, the components of, of the invisible atmosphere that, that surrounds us. And I think some of those personalities are, are some of the most interesting things in the book because they sort of have a, a way about them, a spirit about them of exploration that w just wouldn't happen in, in current times. Uh, and, and I sort of, since we're talking about oxygen, it seems like a natural place to start is to talk about Joseph Priestley, the sometimes forgotten discoverer of oxygen. Yeah, so one thing I do really try to emphasize in the books is, as you said, the personalities, the stories, the heroes and the villains. That's really what kind of drives me when I get interested in a topic is being able to tell those. And Priestley was one of those people who is just such a fun personality that it's kind of a shame we only remember him uh, for his scientific discoveries. He was actually a preacher in his daily life, a very radical preacher, and the congregations that he was preaching to in England uh, didn't appreciate all of these radical theological ideas that he was trying to introduce. So he basically get, kept getting kicked out of each parish and led kind of this wandering existence in England. Uh, but he also had an interest in science, uh, loved the study of gases, and he built what he called his e-laboratory. So that's what they called the laboratory back then, I guess, his e-laboratory in his home where he would sit and he would do all of these experiments on different gases, uh, do things like put different animals or plants under bell jars, see how long they lasted, start mixing things together to see what different gases came off. And he really didn't quite know what he was doing in a lot of cases. But despite this, despite how much of an amateur he was, he ended up discovering something like nine different gases, uh, many of them uh, that appear in our atmosphere. And oxygen was one of them. So maybe the most vital gas for higher life, for animals like us. This uh, preacher is actually the one who ended up discovering it. My favorite component of the story of Joseph Priestley is, um, you know, working in a university as I do, like there's oftentimes a lot of conversation about uh, scientists scooping each other. And that, and that idea of competition goes back to Priestley's time because you relate a story of him sitting down at a dinner with Anton Lavoisier 
outside of Paris and that leading to Lavoisier sort of developing his own model of oxygen and sort of leading to a competition that doesn't end well for either gentleman at the end. No, no, it really doesn't. Uh, yeah, this is a very complex case because there were a couple of people, uh, sort of a forgotten guy named Scheele who discovered oxygen first. Priestley then discovered it independently, and he went to Lavoisier, who was considered the best chemist in the world, and Priestley started explaining his discoveries to Lavoisier over a dinner party. And Lavoisier, there's no question, Lavoisier did not discover oxygen. This was Priestley who discovered it and told Lavoisier about this. But Lavoisier was a much better chemist, and Priestley really didn't understand what he discovered. In particular, he didn't understand that he discovered a new gas. He thought he had discovered, uh, you know, if you've ever read old history books and they talk about this hoary idea called phlogiston, which is supposedly like this material form of heat that flowed around between different substances. It's not the way we think about things today. Uh, but Priestley was very invested in this idea of phlogiston, whereas Lavoisier was having these new ideas like, okay, the air is actually made of different gases, there are different elements involved, and he realized that Priestley had discovered a new gas, and he basically tried to horn in on this discovery and claim it as his own. And the reason it gets complicated is that Lavoisier really is the one who made people appreciate how important oxygen was. He made them understand that oxygen is something that we breathe. It's vital for life. Oxygen is vital for burning. And he's really the one who understood for the first time how important oxygen was. So it's kind of complicated to try to apportion credit for this because someone, the uh, Priestley, did discover it but had no idea what he'd actually discovered, whereas only Lavoisier, the one who didn't discover it, really appreciated and understood it. So it's kind of a complicated case for historians. And as you said, unfortunately for them, uh, the discovery of oxygen uh, did not turn out well for either of them. As I mentioned, Priestley was sort of this radical preacher, and he ended up uh, basically making one of his congregations in Birmingham so angry uh, that they ended up rioting. Uh, they burned him in effigy. They trashed his house and ran him off from England to the United States, and he ended up being in exile in the United States, and he died here because he basically got run out of England. Uh, Lavoisier met an even worse end in that he was French, uh, was around during the French Revolution, and he actually got beheaded during the revolution. They marched him up on stage and chopped his head off with a guillotine. So the discovery of oxygen did not turn out well for any of the people involved. There are these beautiful images of uh, Lavoisier in, the, in your book, like some of the sketches of uh, people's renderings of some of his inventions over time. And I'll, I'll never forget like the the sketch of the invention of these gigantic lenses that he was using to burn diamonds. It, it's a sort of beautiful architecture, and I think it gives you insight into sort of you know the the madness and the experiment experimentation that uh, these folks were uh, undertaking. Um, I want to highlight one other one. I thought the the way that carbon dioxide was was discovered what was fascinating that carbon dioxide in, in a lot of cases was really 
uncovered you in a church and using basically the architecture of a church to its advantage. Yeah, uh, the discoverer of this was a chemist named Joseph Black, and he had a bit of a, uh, a mischievous streak. He liked a little bit of mischief, and so what he did is he had this solution that's called slaked lime, and it's not really important what it is. The important part is that if you bubble carbon dioxide through this solution, it turns cloudy. So it's a good way to test whether carbon dioxide is being given off. And Black was interested in the fact that we exhale carbon dioxide when we speak. And so what he did uh, is he, as you said, took advantage of the architecture of a church. He was Scottish, and Scottish people were known for their uh, sort of extreme religious ceremonies. Uh, and in particular, they would have long sermons on Sundays where the preacher would harangue them for, you know, five, six, seven hours about sin and predestination and all of those good, dour Scottish things. And so one day before the service started, uh, Black snuck up into the rafters and he put a beaker of this slaked lime solution in the rafters. Then he snuck back down. People attended the services. And after five or six hours of the uh, preacher blowing hot air at the congregation, he snuck back up there, got the beaker down, and sure enough, uh, the slaked lime had turned cloudy. So all of the carbon dioxide that the preacher had been spewing out ended up sort of confirming this discovery uh, of carbon dioxide for uh, Joseph Black. A lot of uh, these stories of early chemists and the and their discoveries relate to some sort of performance or personal trial or 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 really just their own sort of supersize me kind of self experimentation. I have to say I was fascinated with the story of Thomas Beddoes and his use of nitrous and just how the many different scenarios that he used nitrous before discovering really what was going on. Yeah, so there was kind of this idea at the time that uh, science was a little bit more of a performance. Uh, there wasn't, they did have journals and things around, but the gold standard, you know, wasn't necessarily getting a paper published in one of these big journals. It was the society meetings and things where you had to demonstrate things in front of people. So there was a bit of a performance in there. Uh, and as you mentioned, Bedos. Uh, was very interested in using gases to cure people. So some of the listeners might have heard of the old idea of miasma theory, which is that bad air is what causes diseases. So malaria sort of famously literally means bad air. And they thought other diseases similarly were brought about by bad air. And Beto's idea was, well, if bad air causes diseases, maybe good air could cure diseases. So let me try to expose people to gases and see if they get better. And one of the gases he was interested in was nitrous oxide, laughing gas. And he ended up hiring this assistant named Humphrey Davy, very famous chemist, to whip up these batches of nitrous oxide. And Davy especially would sit around and he would huff uh, these uh, bags, these silk bags full of nitrous and just see what effect they had. And uh, 
Davy especially was sort of interested in the psychological effects of nitrous as well. So during the day, he and Bedos would expose patients to them to see how well nitrous oxide might cure consumption or palsy or other diseases that they talked about back then. But at night, Davy would actually invite his friends over, people like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, and they would sit around and they would huff laughing gas and get high and talk about, you know, what effects it was having on them. Uh, and he actually cultivated poets and brought them over because poets had a linguistic gift, and he wanted them to be able to describe as precisely as possible what effects they were feeling and what effects the nitrous oxide was having. So inviting poets over was pa actually part of Davy and Beddoes's scientific strategy here. So yeah, there really was this sort of a strange culture at the time of – it was kind of macho to expose yourself to these gases, but also there was a bit of a performance and demonstration in it as well. It's really a different era of science history. It even extended to radiation. You tell a, a short story of, of Robert Oppenheimer even um, demonstrating radioactive salt on himself. Yeah, there was kind of this cavalier attitude uh, about radioactivity that I talk about in the book, how, uh, you know, again, they were kind of macho and they didn't want to take it that seriously. Um, so what was happening was, uh, I think Lawrence it was, Ernest Lawrence, famous uh, physicist, was at a lecture and he had this um, uh, like beaker with radioactive salt in it. Uh, and it was, in fact, so radioactive, the sodium in the salt was so radioactive that it was overwhelming the Geiger counter. It was too radioactive. So probably a bad idea to have this sitting in front of an audience in the first place. Uh, but he still wanted to show that, uh, you know, the properties of radioactivity. So he called Oppenheimer up. They dissolved some of this salt in water, and then Oppenheimer drank the salt solution. And then a few minutes later, after the uh, salt water had worked its way through a system, they started running the Geiger counter over Oppenheimer's body, his limbs, and then the Geiger counter would go off. And of course, everyone had a good laugh at this because, ha, 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 radioactivity, you know, it was just sort of a subject for a joke almost back then. But again, it kind of shows this cavalier macho attitude that they had towards something today that we would be sort of horrified about. Yeah. Most of the book, even though it's filled with these, you know, tall, incredible tales of, of discovery, is about our relationship with the gases that surround us. And, you know, many times it, it's cautionary tales of um, when we, we haven't respected the, the power of gases, like in the Mount St. Helens explosions. Um, and uh, there's an incredible story of uh, of what happened at Lake Nyos in, in Cameroon. Do you want to just relate uh, a little bit about that lake? Yeah, so at the beginning when we were talking about the different atmospheres, I mentioned that volcanoes were the source of the second atmosphere in Earth's history. And the Lake Nyos story is kind of a flashback to those bad old days of volcanoes spewing up all these hot, nasty reactive gases. Uh, so it was a lake that was in a volcanic crater, basically, um, and it was kind of dormant. It wasn't erupting, but there was still carbon dioxide leaking up from a fissure in the bottom of this lake. And it started collecting, the carbon dioxide started collecting 
over hundreds and hundreds of years, and the weight of the water on top was kind of keeping a lid on it, but the carbon dioxide was slowly building up, slowly building up, and one day, no one quite knows why, all of the carbon dioxide sort of whooshed up and got released at once, and it came up in this giant sort of spectacular-looking fountain over the lake, all of these bubbles of carbon dioxide. And it would have been just sort of this spectacular uh, geological event, except so much carbon dioxide came up um, that it started flowing down the sides of this volcano as kind of one giant mass. Carbon dioxide is heavier than air, denser than air. So it sunk down and it stayed together. And unfortunately, it started sweeping through the villages there and basically suffocating people. Um, you know, it was kind of nighttime when this happened. So some of them were tending their fires and they would just drop over dead. Other people were asleep and it would sweep over them and suffocate them. And something like 1,700 people uh, eventually ended up dying as a result of this massive bubble of carbon dioxide that just swept across these villages in Cameroon. It was a very freaky and very disturbing natural disaster, and that geologist had never really seen anything like this before. And it was so strange that some of them didn't believe that it actually happened at first. It took a lot of work and a lot of convincing to um, show them that this strange natural disaster really had taken place. It's a cautionary tale for how much power uh, gases have, but you do spend some time sort of uh, opening up the discussion of, in modern times now, us trying to manipulate our relationship with gases, whether it's geoengineering or others, um, in order to affect change. Given some of these historical stories, where do you fall on the on the spectrum of our ability to um, you know, harness the power of gases for good, given some of the the tales that really show something slightly different? Yeah, it, it's a difficult question uh, because gases really were very powerful and very important for things like the Industrial Revolution. So steam is a gas and steam power was a huge driver. Uh, the internal combustion engine, we put in a liquid gasoline, but what is really driving the engine there is the gas that gets produced uh, when it burns. So the gas is what's actually driving the engine. Things like explosives that we use to clear out landscapes or to you know build tunnels and things like that, clear rock for railroads and other roads. All of those are basically harnessing the power of gases. So we know how powerful gases can be if you can harness them. Uh, but the problem is nowadays we're releasing as a byproduct a lot of gases into the atmosphere that are affecting the climate. They're making the climate warmer. And the question is, well, can we sort of harness the power of gases again to try to mitigate and undo some of these effects? So people talk about doing things like spreading sulfur dioxide in the upper atmosphere, which does a good job of reflecting sunlight back into space. And so maybe if we did that, we could uh, decrease the amount of heat that the Earth is absorbing. But as you said, that's kind of a tricky question because 
you know, we do I do talk about in the book some of the you know disasters that have taken place with gases, some of the sort of cavalier attitude that scientists and other people have had about um, you know the dangers involved, things like that, often to their detriment. And it's it's tricky to try to pin down, you know, what what are the lines we're willing to cross here? Will these actually work? Can we experiment on these things? It gets into some frightening territory, but one that unfortunately we're probably going to have to face pretty soon. And in the book, I talk about, you know, the realities of geoengineering, whether it's a good idea and what the odds are that it actually will succeed. And after all of all of this, this sort of journey through gases. Are you optimistic about our relationship uh, going forward, given the focus that uh, we as a species have to have on carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases now? I am cautiously optimistic about it. Um, I mean, the the thing is that we we are very good as a species when things get bad. And I should emphasize that, you know, the best thing to do would probably be to figure out uh, some alternative energy sources to cut down on consumption, to stop releasing things into the atmosphere. Uh, unfortunately, I'm also a bit pessimistic about the fact or about the idea that we're ever actually going to stop doing those things, whether consumption will actually ever slow down. And in, so that's why I talk about geoengineering is maybe not the best solution, but one of the only pragmatic and realistic solutions. And I guess I am optimistic that we'll come up with some ways to get those gases out of the atmosphere or reflect sunlight or to do something. What I'm worried a little bit about is how much destruction will take place in the meantime because, you know, civilization is a fragile thing and it's an open question about how much damage we're going to end up inflicting on not only the natural world but on ourselves, on human civilization uh, before or if we end up coming up with solutions that are really kind of reverse uh, the effects that we've had on the atmosphere. You know, surprising, one of the things I, I walk away with um, after uh, reading your book is that that culture of showmanship that the a lot of these scientists displayed. You know, we've talked a lot about their cavalier attitude, but there was an element of stagecraft they'd used to communicate this invisible world out to broader audiences. And it seems like a necessary... A story for many of modern scientists to hear as they try to, um, as they struggle to communicate both the threats and the and the concern about the invisible danger of releasing more and more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah, I think reaching people really is an important thing. Um, a lot of people like science, but they feel a little intimidated by it. You know, they like the wonder of it. They have all been moved at some time by some scientific fact or, you know, fallen in love with a certain animal or the stars or something like that. But they do feel a little intimidated by it. And doing things like demonstration or, you know, a little bit of showmanship can really go a long ways in 
in helping them um, kind of overcome that fear and sort of reaching them in the first place. And that's another reason why I really emphasize the stories in my book, you know, beyond just the fact that they're entertaining, they're a good way to reach people and to get them interested in the first place. Uh, because the human brain is just really good about remembering and processing things when they're in a story form. If there are human beings involved, heroes, villains, that grabs our attention. We're suddenly very interested in that. And so the stories can't be all of the science, but especially when you're trying to reach people and get them interested, the stories can be a very good way to capture them and to kind of get them into the science. And then you can teach them after that point. So it's a good way to grab people's attention. Now, that sounds like a great deal of optimism. Uh, on that note, Sam Keen, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Well, thanks for having me. So I still can't wrap my head around this idea that I'm currently harboring molecules from Caesar's last breath. Like, it just seems like, yes, there, you know, there's been a lot of interaction and there's lots of molecules and they're really tiny. But just as a result of that, like, what are the chances that, you know, that one point in time has now reached me? I mean, I can say I can understand that there's like a small probability, but not that it's certain. Oh, okay. So I didn't double check his math, but it, it, like when I read through the book, he he does lay out the math in a compelling way. And I guess you're used to the math of how many billions of neurons are in in our head, and it's it's what like eight eighty billion something like that. Yeah, eighty six. Okay, so eighty six billion. We're talking about like six times ten to the twenty third in terms of the factor that we're talking about when it comes to air, and that's just in, in one mole, right? So there is so many molecules of air out there that even in his last breath, even with you know a breath not being an incredible amount of volume, just the sheer number of molecules within it and the way that molecules of air circulate in the Earth, that the map probability says that those molecules, if the dispersion really takes hold and it's had 2,000 years... Uh, if we believe that dispersion to work, that yeah, one of those molecules is within you and I. Now, maybe you're over there hoarding all of Caesar's molecules within you. But I, I, I see, I, I, I think it's sort of this staggering notion that's really just to underlie a larger point that he's trying to make is that it, air itself carries a history to it. And uh, we, we don't oftentimes talk about it. I mean, I thought it was really fascinating, too, to consider a world before oxygen and how, you know, oxygen would have been toxic to some small organisms that, you know, were living at the time. I think that's really fascinating, given how critical oxygen now is for us and how we've harnessed it. Uh, it it's just it's really interesting. I mean, he, you know, a, lo a lot of the stuff that he sort of mentioned, uh, too, in certain terms of, you know, who discovered oxygen. I had to learn those names in chemistry in, in college. And I remember that was like one of the least fun parts of chemistry is like, OK, learning the names of a whole bunch of like, you know, dead white men. And yeah, no one wants to talk about like <laughs> French 
you know, elite French scientists uh, and their British. I mean, but, but not as uh, when you're yeah, like 15. But, it, but even that, like, that. not like in that uninteresting way. Like, if if Sam Keen had written the textbook and he'd like put in all these tidbits, these racy, you know, things, and the fact that these discoveries led ultimately to their demise. I mean, I would have more likely to want to read about it. I was terrified at the sheer amount of self experimentation, and and so my background is as a chemist and. And uh, that those tales are well worn with inside the the halls of chemistry about how so many historical figures used to experiment on themselves. And like you couldn't even fathom doing that now in a lab like, oh, I'll just I'll just open up this container and sniff it and see what happens. <laughs> and um, they are diagrams in Sam's book of some of the inventions. And they're the craziest things you've ever seen. And uh, just like massive inventions, like the the French scientist, Lavoisier, he had this giant sort of focusing lens uh, out back of his house, uh, like the size of a car that he built to kind of create oxygen. It was this insane looking machine that, you know, I could barely think of hardly a couple people on in current times that would have such devices, Elon Musk. But, you know, outside of that, like, he just struck me so as such an eccentric that I love sort of the layering Sam puts on this historical tale. Yeah. And yet, you know, here we are in, you know, some aspects of our of our work, trying to get people to do more DIY science. And so, you know, maybe we're trying to push people more towards in that direction. And I, I agree with you. It seems it seems completely bizarre to you know, pot, you know, to think about somebody in their garage could discover an element. And, and certainly that's highly unlikely today, if not completely impossible. But it's... I'm going to go with completely impossible <laughs> at this point. Yeah, wait, how many molecules are there in a breath of air? Yeah, around that likelihood, right? So um, anyway, so yeah, it's just it just but it but at the same time, I feel like this is what makes science so exciting. It's just the thought that anyone can do it. And it's great to hear people like Sam Keen tell us these histories because it makes it feel so much more tractable. Well, I encourage our listeners to check out his book, uh, Caesar's Last Breath, and uh, wait for Bated Breath for his next one because they're always entertaining. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Shen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. And just a reminder, go on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps so many more people discover the show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow 
today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.